Tuesday, Daily Delivery. I am Michael Rand. Glad to have you guys back for another day. Good show coming up. Andrew Kramer from the Star Tribune will join me here in just a little bit to talk NFL, Vikings, uh, defensive coordinator search, NFL playoffs. Just some good insights from Andrew. Always good to have him on. He is a regular during the NFL season, does the film review. Didn't ask him to break down any film this time, but uh, did ask him a bunch of questions and got into some hypotheticals on Kirk Cousins and other things of that nature. So hopefully you enjoy that conversation here in just a little bit. It led me down a dark path, though. A little upset with Andrew. He didn't tell me that there are all sorts of goodies on that Spotrack site he was talking about. I've been on there plenty of times, but these are some new features that allow you to play around with the team's salary cap by cutting, restructuring, things like that. So I had some fun with that, and I will share that with you here in just a little bit. Got some uh, got some good good stuff at the end of the show, too. Some required reading if you want to understand this impending um, Diamond Sports, Valley Sports North um, impacted bankruptcy that's coming. Fangraph's a really good piece. I'll get into that in a little bit. First, though, what did I miss? Let's talk Timberwolves and Wild at the jump. Wolves played on Monday night, a real chance for them to kind of not to not take control. Nobody's going to take control in the West for a long time. This thing's going to be tight down the stretch with so many teams bunched together between you know four and four and twelve, really four and thirteen in this in this West. And a bunch of these teams are going to miss the playoffs, and must, a bunch of them are going to miss the play in even. But uh, some of them are going to make it, and the Wolves had a chance. They'd been on a nice little run, three in a row against three good teams in the West. They'd, be, they'd beaten Memphis, they'd beaten New Orleans, and they'd beaten Sacramento. Now, this is the rematch against Sacramento, the second one of those uh, staggered back-to-backs um, Saturday and Monday. Saturday, they looked awfully good. Monday, I didn't think, you know, I don't want to panic every time they lose. They lost this game in overtime, but there were a couple of things that were troubling in the game one of them obviously was that um they just some of the things that haven't gone well for them this year that seemed like they were starting to get cleaned up came up at inopportune times chris finch actually head coach of the wolves addressed that after the game let's play that clip really quick here you know i thought some old habits bit us in the tonight with the turnovers um the 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 rebounds uh, of course the free throw rebound we just talked about you know, we get up 10 and then we get loose with the ball, careless. You know, we start the fourth with a crummy turnover. And, you know, just every time we were able to build momentum, I thought we shot ourselves in the foot with, with turnovers or bad shots, you know, so. Now, did I pull that out just so I could use the beat button again? Maybe, uh, maybe a little bit, but it was also illustrative of, the, he was he was absolutely correct. It was the, the turnovers, it was the bad shot selection, it was the sloppy play. And it was the rebounding when they needed it most. That that sequence towards the end where De'Aaron Fox, um, Kings were down three with two minutes left. He he makes the first free throw, misses the second, but they get the tap out rebound. Fox hits a three. Suddenly, you know, Sacramento's got a four point possession. They take the lead, and the you know the Wolves did manage to tie the game. Jade McDaniel's three pointer got them to overtime, but they didn't have much going in overtime, and that was the second troubling thing. Rudy Gobert was on the floor in overtime. He had a good game. I'm not saying he didn't have a good game. He was a plus in the game. He was double-double. He was good a lot of the game. But because Demata Sabonis fouled out late in that game, Sacramento went to 
basically a, a centerless lineup in overtime. Spread the Wolves out, tried to drive and kick, shoot threes. Rudy Gobert was on the court for that, and that is not Rudy Gobert's game. Sacramento made a bunch of threes, had a you know had a <clears throat> had some dunks in there too, just too easy in overtime with Rudy Gobert on the court trying to defend a bunch of shooters out there. That's just not his game. He's not a good chaser. He's not. That's not good for him, and that is a problem because in the playoffs, at some point, a team is going to do that to you. You can play Rudy Gobert off the floor to a certain degree, or or you suffer the consequences. The Wolves tried to try to keep him on the floor. Did not work in this game. Costs them in overtime. Finch said, maybe that's on me. Got to look at different lineup combinations. Gobert, I'm sure, wants to be on the floor. Thinks he can do better. Said, we got to look at the film. I think some players probably a little bit unhappy with everything that transpired. Anthony Edwards walking off without taking questions. A rarity for Ant. He is one of the more loquacious players on the team. Always good with the media, it seems, this year. But um, in this game said, I'm going to say the wrong thing tonight as he left the locker room, declining to take questions. Reading from Chris Hines' game story. So no Ant after the game to talk about that. That was interesting to me. <clears throat> Some frustrations for the Wolves. I'm, I'm glad they're frustrated. It was a frustrating game to watch to a certain degree. Like again, like again said, though, I, I don't want to panic every time they lose. Sacramento's a good team. They're above them in the standings. They're a surprise team this year, and they're playing quite well. I don't think either team played great, but I think they both played pretty hard. Sometimes you're going to lose a game like that. Now, can they avoid making this a habit? That is the question going forward because, like I said, this is very narrow, and this is where we get into some Wolves and Wild Talk. Wolves about a coin flip right now to make the playoffs, looking at the uh, playoff probabilities on basketball reference like I like to do from time to time, about 46% to make the playoffs. Much better shot at making at least the play-in, which is the top 10. They've got about a 70% chance of doing that. That sounds about right. Like I said, so many teams bunched together. I think the Wolves fell from like 5th or 6th to ninth just from losing this one game. That's how much these games are impacted in the standings, so that will be something to watch going forward. The Wild, according to Hockey Reference, an 80% chance right now of making the postseason. So that feels like, you know, if you've been watching these two teams, if you follow them reasonably closely and they feel like they're having somewhat parallel seasons where they're both kind of up, kind of down, kind of all around, the Wild much better chance of being in the top eight than the Wolves right now. Wild, of course, on an extended break here with the All-Star game coming up this weekend. But the Wild looking to be in pretty good position heading into the second half of the season. We'll see where the Wolves wind up. We'll see where the Wild wind up at the end of the year. I think they're both going to be pretty interesting down the stretch. Um, but we'll see particularly if the Wolves can solve some of these problems that have been plaguing them all season long and that they seemed to start to be figuring out. And again, just one game. Not an entire game problem, but came up at the wrong times in this game and cost them against Sacramento. Take a playcation to Mystic Lake. With 24-7 gaming, the good times never have to end. And you can satisfy your cravings at our restaurants and bars. Or relax in one of our luxurious hotel rooms. Those that play together, stay together. And don't forget to join Club M so you can spark new memories and bask in the rewards along the way. Follow the lights to Mystic Lake, where every day is play day. Let's bring on Andrew Kramer, covers the Vikings and the NFL for the Star Tribune, an avid football watcher. I'm not going to make you review any film today, Andrew. There's not. I'm not going to make you break down the NFC or AFC title games, but I did want to get your perspective on 
what we watched over the weekend. Um, and now, obviously, Philadelphia and Kansas City set to play in the Super Bowl in a couple of weeks. And maybe, just maybe, kind of how that, you know, what we watched in the playoffs, which included the Vikings, obviously, how that should inform decisions they might make, the Vikings going forward and or kind of where the NFL is at right now. So first of all, welcome. Thanks for being on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, we were just talking before starting this about the games yesterday and obviously being a disappointment with that first one and Brock Purdy going down and then at the second one, just having so many weird things happen um, in that game. But I kept thinking actually of, a, of Kwese Adolfo Mensa's comment last summer about, I think it was to USA Today, about how, quote, you never want to go full Rams in terms of building your roster. And what he meant, obviously, was what the Rams did in terms of trading all their draft picks, building a very top-heavy roster, uh, kind of shortening your window. And the crux of what he was trying to say is you want to keep your window open. Um, But I, I do think when you look at Philly and San Fran, big moves, being bold is being rewarded here. You're seeing whether it was the A.J. Brown trade for Philadelphia, um, Hassan Reddick was one of the top free agent signings last offseason. He made a huge impact in that game. San Francisco trading for Christian McCaffrey, uh, having huge free agency signings, and Trent Williams a couple years ago, and Charvarius Ward was one of the top corners last year in the market on free agency. So uh, big swings are rewarded in, in, in building and, and kind of rounding out the holes of your roster, and you're seeing that with just deep teams. I mean, I think, Mike, we watched that all year. San Fran and Philly were the, clearly the two best in the NFC um, almost from start to finish. Yeah, and you know, what's what's interesting about those two teams, I wrote about this a little bit on Monday, is both of them obviously very deep, talented rosters, but obviously both of them too can construct their rosters in a certain way because they are planning on having cheap quarterback play for at least the the relative near term. You've got Jalen Hurts now. This is year three for him, if I'm not mistaken. So you've got him pretty well cost-controlled for another year next season. Now he's not a first-round pick, so he's not got that fifth-year option. And eventually he's going to get paid. And the 49ers obviously have been planning for an eventual day when Jimmy Garoppolo is not on the roster. And you know, even though he counted about 12 or $13 million on their cap this season, you know, they've kind of got two you know, reasonably priced options right now in Trey Lance and Brock Purdy going forward. I'm I'm assuming that's what they're going to be looking at next year, where if you're spending, you know, less than $10 million on your quarterback, and in some cases the Eagles like a million and a half this year, and even if you're the Bengals, you have who has an exceptional quarterback who's still on that rookie deal in Joe Burrow, you're seeing a lot of the same kind of common themes in how you're able to build your roster when you aren't paying your quarterback all that much yet. And again, I'm not going to draw too many parallels to the Vikings at this point. We'll get to that at, at a certain point. But you you do see the the depth that those teams are able to build when they are, you know, paying their quarterbacks on those rookie deals. Yeah, and the highest paid player on the Niners and the Eagles in terms of just cap hit for this year, um, for each of them were guys that were acquired from outside the organization. It's Trent Williams for San Francisco. It's Darius Slay. For Philadelphia, Darius Slay was traded for from Detroit two or three years ago. And so to your point, they are able to build these kind of mercenaries around the, these younger, cheaper quarterbacks. And that allows you that freedom that 
you can really only overcome it when the only quarterback playing this weekend on a veteran contract is the greatest to play right now in Patrick Mahomes. You need to be a Joe Burrow, Patrick Mahomes to just kind of drag your team along, even though they're not going to be as good around you. Um, And and the Vikings see that all the time. And and as we go into an off season again of talking about Kirk Cousins, do they pay him? Do they extend him? What do they do with him in his future? Um, That's all framing the context of this conversation because the Vikings have to pay Justin Jefferson as we talk about, and they have so many other talented players, pro bowl players um, that they need to make huge decisions on uh, coming up. Well, and this, you know, is remindful of, I think it was the 2018 scouting combine. So almost five years ago when the Vikings were trying to decide what to do about quarterback. And Mike Zimmer was saying, I don't want to talk about windows. I want to talk about wide open spaces. Well, didn't he say yep. something to that effect? <laughs> and, you know, he and did. that was, yep. and that was obviously, you know, thinking of the context of everything that happened in his tenure and just how devastating that the, the chain of events that came from Teddy Bridgewater getting hurt in the middle of his rookie contract and then suddenly having to spend more at that position and it eventually became more and more kind of a shift in philosophy. And again, like you said, if you're paying Patrick Mahomes that kind of money and he plays the way he played, even on a sprained ankle, um, it, it's worth it. But it's just an interesting exercise in in roster building. And I think we see it time and time again, like the, the, the way teams generally win these days is either with cheap quarterbacks, elite quarterbacks, or some combination of both. If you happen to be lucky to, to have them at the same time. It's also pass rush. I I couldn't, good point. I mean, I couldn't believe how much of a struggle that Joe Burrow had and just getting the ball out. It felt like every completion Cincinnati made was just getting it out just on a hair um, out of the pocket because Burrow's getting crushed behind three backup offensive right. linemen. And then Philadelphia can, we talked about this on access Vikings. They can just send wave after wave of guys. I mean, when Robert Quinn, Adamican Sue admittedly, you know, in the twilight of their career, but still very talented in their roles are coming off the bench for a team like that. Um, they are a very talented deep pass rush team that we saw. That's when the Vikings defense could really only make its impact on games was when it could force the issue on the quarterback, uh, get that pressure, force those turnovers as they did so frequently in their wins. Um, But they just didn't have the depth that these other teams do. San Francisco too, to their credit, Jalen Hurts, I didn't think played that well in that game. And San Francisco got after him, played very great defense as they always do. And it just goes to show you that, that the, the kind of depth and talent, defensively can really carry you no no matter if it's Josh Johnson or Brock Purdy. Yeah. And I I felt like even though Philadelphia's path ended up being um, amazingly easy when, when with the injuries to the 49ers quarterbacks, I did think that maybe we saw enough along the way that they were in fact, the best team in the NFC. I think they probably in, in a healthy, if everybody's healthy, I think Philadelphia is still probably a better team than the 49ers. What do what do you think? I do too. Um, I think right now with the dynamicness, uh, the dynamic ability, I should say, of of Jalen Hurts, um, his ability to run that just carries and makes people pause. Tony, was it Tony Romo? No, who did the early game for the broadcast? Uh, I think it was Greg Olson. Yeah, Greg Olson did a good job of pointing out how every time the linebackers for San Francisco would have to freeze, and how it makes four or five linebackers run four sevens because you have to sit there and pause and wait for the quarterback and whether or not he's going to hand off. Is he going to keep it? You don't have to worry about that with Brock Purdy. You don't have to worry about that with Kirk Cousins. You know, you, those kinds of quarterbacks that have that running ability add 
that dynamic. It's why the Niners drafted Trey Lance at yes. number three overall. They want him to be that kind of guy like Jalen Hurts. And obviously he's not there yet for many reasons. But I think Philadelphia is head and shoulders above them right now. And even if Brock Purdy played, I think Philadelphia still would have probably cruised to a win eventually in that game because their defense was really getting after um, Purdy at first and then Josh Johnson and then Purdy again. And then obviously Philadelphia can just play ground control. And Miles Sanders was ripping off touchdown runs. Jalen Hurts really didn't even need to do much. I don't know even if Jalen Hurts is fully healthy right now. Right. Um, because of how they're calling these games where it's it's do or die and he's really not putting his shoulder into people. Um, so that's, that could be a factor still too. But I think it's the quarterback and, and that running ability that really separates Philadelphia too. Yeah, I agree with that. And the other game obviously was much better, um, the, the Kansas City Cincinnati game, but we, you know, you alluded to this, um, just the officiating in that game. And I, Royce and I talked about this a fair amount on, on Monday already, but you know, it, it's, it's, it's too bad when that is the dominant kind of discussion point after a game that was really quite good, you know, two very good teams. I think the two, what ended up being the two best teams in the AFC, no disrespect to Buffalo, but I think, I think Cincinnati showed that they were maybe a better team than Buffalo this season by going in there and doing what they did. But, um, it it is too bad, and it's 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 not so much that the calls are incorrect. It's just when you make those calls that could be made any time in those key moments, it, it just it raises people's eyebrows, and they say, ah, what, "What's the influence of refereeing on this game?" Because it feels like it was a lot. I thought both of them too. I think I looked this up because I was curious. There was on average in NFL games this year, there was eleven penalties accepted, and there was thirteen accepted in one of those games, and fifteen accepted in the other. It just felt like officials had a really big impact on both of those games, but especially, as you mentioned, the second one, Chiefs-Bengals, where they just gave him a do-over. Yeah. A, a do-over. Like, what? I've I never gonna, I was going to blow the play dead, so it's dead. And you guys get another <laughs> try. And they and they and and after that, on that next play, didn't they call either some kind of defensive penalty they gave him a first down? And they, Cincinnati still got off the field, which was amazing. They got off the field in the next sequence, but it was, yeah, they gave him a lot of tries at that. Yeah, fortunately for the officials and just the game itself, that had no impact really on the outcome because, as you mentioned, they still forced the, the Chiefs punt there. But um, I, I do think just some of the question marks there, I do, I, I feel bad for, um, I, I wish I could remember the kid's name who hit, had the late hit oh, on Osai. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You just feel for that kid and, and how, you know, that little thin margin of error because that is a penalty. Yeah. And was... sometimes it doesn't get called. Right. Sure, and fans, I understand you. If, especially if you're rooting for the Bengals, you don't want that to get called. But man, I, you feel for that kid in that moment, and that was the one call, game-changing call that I, I thought was justified. That yes, people I did too. Seem to disagree with. I didn't have a problem with that call per se. I mean, I could, I would have lived with it if they didn't call it because they didn't want that to be the outcome decider. Because obviously, it changed what would have been a. 60 yard field goal attempt or are they you know they had eight seconds left so they probably would have tried one more kind of pass play to get into field goal range and it still would have been possible but obviously when you give them 15 yards and take a 60 to a 45 that turns a you know very unlikely field goal into a very possible field goal especially in those temperatures I don't think I don't think Kansas City was going to make a 60 yarder in that in those uh, in those conditions so I mean that was quite the quite the determining factor in that game but you know 
he was definitely out of bounds and even his own teammates. You see the footage of his teammate just like yelling at him. Like, how can you put your hands on the quarterback? Like, as they're going into the locker room? That was, oh, that no, was I didn't. I, I yeah. missed that. Yeah. No, I missed that. Oh man. And that's just, and that's the worst, the guy's worst moment in his professional life. Just tripped to the Super Bowl on the line. The stakes obviously only get higher two weeks later. Um, otherwise that's the highest stakes that he might ever play in. Uh, Cause of how hard it is. You just, you feel for him and, and you understand too, that, um, the, the margins with all this analysis, all the talking, all the money that goes into trying to predict who does what. And it comes down to stuff like that. It does. Um, let's shift gears a little bit, talk a little bit of Vikings, even though we kind of got into it a little bit in the quarterback discussion and just where that's at right now. I think the bigger immediate thing for the Vikings is who is going to be their defensive coordinator next season. And, and you know, more than that, what's kind of the direction they want to go defensive philosophy wise it doesn't sound like they're in a huge hurry to make a hire and i guess i can understand that if not a lot of other teams are in the market for a defensive coordinator right now that said a did we learn anything from the playoffs this year that would make you think they should go one way or the other and and b what do you think i mean where do you think they're at in that search and what what would you do if you were them as they kind of proceed with some of these candidates they've already looked at yeah, to carry over the conversation on aggressiveness in team building, I think just being aggressive on the field defensively um, in, in an aggressive sport like football is obviously very rewarding. We are seeing that. It's not just that Fred Warner's great at covering um, in, in, in um, run, running backs out of the backfield. It's also that he can blitz and um, be, wreak havoc as well, and that he's D'Amico Ryans sets them up to do that as a coach. Um, we see the same thing with Jonathan Gannon and the Philadelphia Eagles. They don't just sit back and say, you know what? We got a good four man pass rush. Let's just sit back in our zones. Um, like Ed Donatel would do. They, they are very aggressive defense as well. And they mix it up. So I think the aggression is what stands out to me. Kevin O'Connell sees it. He knows it. He knows coaching against these defenses, what makes them difficult to go against. And it's when they can dictate the terms at times, by doing things that are either unpredictable um, or just send so much pressure from certain directions that it forces you and ties your hand behind your back as an offensive play caller. Um, I think those are the kinds of things, and we heard O'Connell talk about it throughout the year, that the Vikings were too passive at times, too much air in the coverage. Um, Patrick Peterson mentioned after one of those December games, I was thankful for the opportunity to be aggressive. Um, <laughs> They just were not coached or positioned to really dictate games. And what they were do, they were dictated individually to like punch the ball out, you right. know, try to tip passes and get interceptions. Like that stuff was all well and good. But just the grand picture, the schemes, the play calling, um, it just wasn't there. And I think that is what looms over this defensive coordinator search as we see two very physical, aggressive defenses from Steve Spagnola in Kansas City and Jonathan Gannon in Philadelphia going to the Super Bowl. Well, and it's interesting, too, because you look at who the Vikings have interviewed, and you've got you know the in-house candidate with Pettin, and you've got Brian Flores, who's been a head coach, who has been a successful coordinator, and he might get another chance as head coach if he winds up getting the Arizona job, and obviously that would take him out of the discussion for the, the Vikings job, obviously the defensive coordinator job. But, you know, that would be a, a little bit of a, maybe not even a little bit, a lot of a departure from what happened in year one, wouldn't it? I think it would. I think it would. And and that's kind of what the the search seems to form to me anyway, is that O'Connell in the second run-up of getting uh, uh, the right defensive mind to run things, 
um, you know, wants to try to have more of that attacking personality. And even Mike Pettin, a guy who runs a very similar system when he was in Green Bay, um, he ran it differently. And they were very successful, but he was outed because he wasn't uh, LaFleur's guy. He was already there when LaFleur got hired. And so I don't know how much of that was his fault or what, but the results were there up until the postseason, as it often happens in Green Bay. Um, so I think Petten will get a serious look and, and will get serious consideration because he does know the personnel. Ben Gessling talked about this on our Access Vikings podcast earlier about his connections to a lot of the guys in the building and understanding what could be a smooth transition from Ed Donatel. And then Flores, as we know, runs a very aggressive style coming from the Patriots, going to Miami. It's still a 3-4 typically, but even going to Pittsburgh, um, it's a lot more man-to-man coverage, and it's a lot more aggressive on the back end and the secondary than, than what we just came off of um, under Ed Donatel. So I think all three guys, Sean Desai as well, um, was somebody they interviewed uh, and is a candidate, the guy out in Seattle, former Chicago Bears assistant, was there, I believe, with Vic Fangio and Ed Donatel. Um, the important thing to remember is that people, we like to analyze these things by tying them to Vic Fangio and all that. But as we just learned with Ed Donatel, these guys run these schemes very differently. They have little nuances, they have preferences and all that. And clearly Ed Donatel coached this and ran it much more passively than Vic Fangio did. So I'm not sure how Sean Desai does it. All I know is that Pete Carroll, much more aggressive coach defensively. Same with Vic Fangio, who we worked with before. All I know is that it couldn't be much more passive than how Ed Donatel <laughs> ran it. But, uh, you know, some of that, though, maybe we'll leave with this thought. Some of that, though, was probably dictated by personnel. We can't put that all on Ed Donatel. So, you know, obviously, defensive coordinator is probably the next big thing on the Vikings agenda. But as you think about their February to-do list, we've got you know, meetings, combine coming up. What's what's their process right now? What what should they be thinking about or looking at as they try to get better for you know for the upcoming months and, and you know make some roster decisions here? Yeah, they have a lot of meetings with agents. Um, they do this every year. Obviously, this is the process every offseason to meet with the agents of of upcoming um, free agent players, guys who are out of contract, guys who are entering contract years, uh, or really just their, all their players in general to update. Uh, where they're at and what they're thinking. But the Vikings have to do this, and Kwese has to do this, because they've got Eric Kendricks at an, a non-guaranteed $11 million. Um, they've got Zadarius Smith coming up with a contract trigger in, in March, a uh, guaranteed trigger that they have to make a decision on beforehand. Do you pay him or not? Uh, he can be moved on from. Um, you can move on from guys from like Harrison Smith and Adam Thielen, even though it'll cost you a lot in terms of what they're guaranteed or what they already count against your books but i just saw some projection i think it was by Spotrack that the vikings are um 28th in the league in in salary cap space and with the new salary cap number that just came out 224 million that they're like 20 million over or something so they've got a lot of decisions to make and that is what needs to happen those dominoes need to fall before they decide how they add um in free agency in march Got to subtract before you add. Got to walk before you run. Well, we'll see how it all (laughs) shakes out. I mean, you know, I've I've said this before. It it feels like the 13 and 4 season might complicate those decisions a little bit. I hope they are still able to make honest and accurate roster assessments and not be kind of not buy into the fool's gold of the record so much as the process. I think the guys that they have in charge won't be fooled by that, but 
then again, it is, you know, when you go 13 and four, I think there probably is a little bit more of a, eh, you know, are we that far away in the back of your mind? That's true. But this team, we constantly hear it behind the scenes. They say it um, at the podium as much as they do in, in the locker room about trusting the process yep. over the results yep. and all this. And I think a case study, an interesting one for that will be how they treat Kirk Cousins uh, deal coming up here as he enters that last year of his contract. I agree. Good stuff as usual, Andrew. We'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Mike. Good stuff from Andrew, like I said, but like I also said at the jump, he did not tell me that Spotrac had these wonderful new features about cutting players, restructuring players. I got on there, played around. Uh, Vikings are about $20, 22000000 million over the cap, not when I got done with them. I uh, went through... I uh, sorry, I, I released Adam Thielen. That saved about six million dollars. I, uh, I I I uh, let's see, what else did I do? Um, I restructured Harrison Smith. That saved about nine million dollars. Sorry, Harrison Smith is on the books now until 2026. But you know what? That's fine. We'll deal with that. Um, what else did we do? We cut Dalvin Cook. That saved about eight million dollars. Um, what else did we do? What else did we do? We cut Eric Kendricks. We cut Jordan Hicks. And we cut um, CJ Ham. Sorry, CJ Ham. Got to do it. I don't know what what, what more they have. Uh, what use they really have for a fullback on this roster? So, add that all up. Suddenly, the Vikings have thirty-one million dollars in cap space. In my world, they're also missing a lot of players who were pretty good for them in recent years. But maybe that's what they're going to have to do. Something's going to have to be pretty stark. I, I cut. Uh, we cut Zadarius Smith too. That was an easy one. Um, thank you for your contributions. That saved $13 million. That was the biggest one of all. But you're cutting basically both of your starting linebackers. You're cutting your starting running back. You're cutting a guy who had multiple you know, double-digit sacks this season, and you're cutting a very good fullback. That's, that's some of the pain they're going to have to go through if they are going to get under the cap, have money to spend on other players, have money to sign their draft picks, things like that. Now, fortunately, they don't have too many draft picks, just four, so they won't be spending a whole lot on the draft. But they do have money to reallocate in different areas if they want to go a different direction. That's how they can get there. These tough decisions did not do a single thing with Kirk Cousins and his $36 million cap hit. Um, wasn't much you could do with that, according to this. Didn't let me do a restructure. Didn't let me do anything. You could release him, but that wouldn't do anything at all. Actually, that would hurt the cap if you released him because he would it would cost you $12 million more on your cap to release Kirk Cousins than it does to... Uh, than it does to do anything else. So there you have it. I, I did not release Kirk Cousins. We keep we're keeping Kirk Cousins. Um, we're doing all that stuff. But uh, it's you know it's just an interesting off season. A lot of hard choices for the Vikings. A fun tool on uh, Spotrac.com. S P O T R A C.com. If you want to play around with the 2023 Vikings, um, get them under the cap. See where they can go. You can sign free agents. I didn't do that yet, but uh, there is a way to to see how this might all shake out and see what the uh, what the possible options are. And maybe Andrew and I, next time he's on, can have a little bit more fun with that. Let's finish with the cooler. Minnesota Supreme Court Justice Barry Anderson likes to stay in contact on the Bally Sports North Diamond Sports um, saga. And uh, he sent me a good uh, link the other day on Twitter. Had a good story on fan graphs that really went deep on uh, on the whole Diamond Sports bankruptcy, what it means, how it happened, things like that. It was the best kind of 
long form explainer that I've seen on kind of how we got here. It's a lot of stuff that I'd kind of had read, but in better financial detail. Talked about potential impact on baseball teams, kind of looking at teams that signed deals maybe fairly recently that could be harmed more than teams that are maybe having their rights come up. And that's the Twins right now. They're in a better boat than a lot of teams because their deal with Bally Sports North is up after 2023. So they just have one more year of this. This piece sounded pretty optimistic that everybody, at least in the short term, could be okay. I don't think the Twins are going to suffer too much this year. You would think that the, there's going to be some incentive to keep these games, to keep these games on the air, to keep the cash flowing in, at least temporarily, to make sure everybody is happy until something new gets worked out. But we will see. But go find that on Fangraphs. That was a really good piece. Um, and thank you to Barry Anderson for sending that to me. That'll do it for today. Good stuff coming up on Wednesday. Plenty to have Star Tribune columnist Chip Scoggins on to talk about all sorts of stuff. Until then, enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. I'm Michael Rand. Talk to you then.